We return after being away from a couple of months to what has become a staple for us at Christ the King, and that is this letter of Paul to these Christians living in Rome. And as we read these verses, let me encourage you to think of this passage and this sermon as actually a sort of an on-ramp back into the pace, if you will, of Paul's letter to the Romans. So, Read with me at verse 19 of chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we Come to this, your word. We thank you for it. We ask you for the help that we need, not only to understand it, but to take it into our hearts so that deep in our souls it might do its work, the work of revealing you in your Son to be this great and glorious Savior, redeeming a people out of every nation on the face of the earth. Give us grace to see and to hear these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, John Bates is free. John Bates has been released from prison. He's been freed from his nasty conspiratorial cellmate, Lynch. Who is John Bates? Who is John Bates? Well, some of you know. I mean, many of you know who John Bates is. John Bates is one of the key characters, one of the central characters in this BBC production that has just sort of blown its way through America like the Beatles did 50 years ago or 40 or whenever it was. My goodness, it's 50 now, isn't it? John Bates is the valet to Lord Grantham of Downton Abbey. He is the husband now of 
Anna Bates, Nee Smith, formerly Anna Smith. Tonight is the, the last episode in season three of Downton Abbey. And I can't wait to see what unfolds tonight. So let me, let me invite you to watch. If you've not watched an episode of this fabulous production, watch it tonight. But if you watch it tonight, and you've not watched any of the preceding episodes, at the end of tonight's episode, you're going to have a million questions. Who are all of these people? What is the deal with O'Brien? And what is the deal with Thomas? And where did Matthew get his money anyway? And who is he? And how does he end up married to Mary? And what is the thing that's going on between Mary and Matthew and between Matthew and Lord Grantham? You're going to have a million questions. How come? Because you didn't watch season one and you didn't watch season two and you didn't watch the first six or seven episodes of season three. Watching Downton Abbey tonight is a little bit like picking up your Bible and starting at Hebrews. Now, if you read Hebrews, you're going to find some real nuggets. You're going to find some stuff of incredible comfort, like Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You'll find all kinds of nuggets like that in Hebrews. But what you'll miss is the incredible imagery and the interwovenness of all of that imagery A throne whereupon sits a king, a king who is also a priest, a king and priest who are much different from all the other kings and priests you've probably ever encountered. One you can draw near to. How is it that you can draw near to him? Well, you can draw near to him because he knows you and he understands you and he's walked this life before you and he's suffered all the pains and anguishes and temptations that are common to this life and yet without failing. You see, all of that stuff, all of the beautiful, the interwovenness of all of that imagery and all of that truth, you don't have that if you just pick the thing up at Hebrews and start reading Hebrews. You've got to go back and get season one and season two and the first six-sevenths of season three. We live in a culture, both a popular culture and a church culture, where so many of us have just, we've just lost sight of the story, the grand, glorious story that begins to unfold at Genesis 1-1 and continues across two-thirds of your Bible, which comes to great and glorious fulfillment and fruition in the last third of your Bible and centered upon this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the one to whom all of that Old Testament history points and the one from whom all of subsequent history flows. 
We live in a day and time which the story is just not familiar to us. And that's really the great challenge of preaching and teaching today. The great challenge in this culture, one of them anyway, is to familiarize people with this story, this story that is centuries and millennia old. And and it's a story in the case of some it's a story simply not known. Let's call them the Gentiles. Those who, who don't know the story, who haven't been told the story, but who have heard something about the story, and having heard something about the story, by the grace of God, they're being drawn to and into the story, but they don't know the story. Let's call them the Gentiles. But then there are others, there are others who in a very real sense have been told the story badly. They're victims, they're victims of those who have handled the story badly. Let's call them the Jews, those who have been told maybe some elements of the story, maybe some aspects of the story, but who have been told the story, and I I trust you'll let me use these kinds of words without taking offense. They've been told the story either by Pharisees on the one hand, that is fundamentalists, who have reduced the story to law-keeping or proper propositions and gutted it. Of its grace. Or on the other hand, the Sadducees, the theological liberals of the day, who gutted the glory of the gospel story of all of its supernatural qualities and beauty and otherworldly dimensions. Let me suggest to you that the Apostle Paul is writing to those two groups of people in this letter to the Romans. And he's at great pains across the pages of this letter to kind of set the record straight about what's going on. For the Gentiles who've been introduced to the story, but who need to grow in their familiarity with the story, and from the Jews who've heard aspects, bits and pieces of the story, but in large measure, and for most of them, the story has been handled badly. And Paul is writing this letter before he goes to Rome, before he, never having been there, comes to Rome to preach the gospel he's been preaching for 25 years across Asia Minor, across Greece, into Europe, and eventually into Rome, and even beyond that, perhaps into Spain, this gospel he wants to unfold and unpack for these people, these Gentiles and these Jews who are worshiping in these mixed congregations and are trying to figure out what this gospel means for them. Paul is writing this letter to help with that and to introduce himself. Let me have us do three things as we get back up to speed with this letter to the Romans. And I have to do each of these quickly. But let's look at three things. Let's look first at Paul's method. 
And then let's look second very briefly at his argument. And then let's see finally where Paul grounds his argument, answering the question, what is Paul's authority? So his method, his argument, and his authority. What's his method? What am I referring to when I talk about Paul's method? Well, let's, let's be clear about what we're not saying and what Paul is not doing. Paul is not in a study someplace. Paul is not the resident theologian at the current theological institute. Paul is probably in Corinth as he makes his plans to go to Rome. But Paul is not an abstract theologian and he's not a He's not writing an abstract treatise on the nature of the gospel. He's not an academic. Though Paul, and this has been observed by scholars across the centuries, though Paul is incredibly brilliant. And Paul was possessed of incredible training. He's not at the Corinth Theological Institute, but he studied in the best theological and secular institutions a person could have studied in at his time. F.F. Bruce, in his book, Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free, identifies that there were three key centers of learning in Paul's day, Athens, Alexandria, and Tarsus, And in Paul's day, Tarsus was preeminent among the three. And that's where he was from. And he was a Roman citizen. And he attended the University of Tarsus. Call it Oxford. Call it Harvard. Call it whatever you want to call it. It was the number one place to go to school. And he went there and he learned about Greek and Roman culture. He quotes Greek philosophers in his letters. He knew the Greek world. And then he went to Jerusalem and studied in the best theological training center a person could have chosen at the time. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the preeminent rabbi of the day. He had the best education. He had a brilliant mind, but he was an evangelist and a pastor and an apologist who cared for the souls of people. He loved people. His heart broke. His heart broke when he saw people who had embraced, appeared to have embraced Christ when he saw them walk away. Read his letters and you will see the pulsing heart of an evangelist, a pastor, an apologist who cared for people. And so what was his method? What did he do? What did this man do? Well, if you read through the book of Acts, just sampling a couple of passages, you can make note of these and you can read them later. Look at Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. Daily for two solid years, the apostle Paul reasoned Two years in Ephesus, reasoned, argued, interacted with Jews and Gentiles about the gospel of Christ. Two years. If you read the commentators, they'll tell you that across that two-year span, he was in a public place eight to ten hours a day. Eight to ten hours a day. Answering questions, interacting with folks about the gospel. 
Look at Acts 20, verses 18 through 20. Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that he was with them publicly and from house to house. In other words, after he did the eight to ten hour stint in the public place, he went to people's homes and continued the conversation in their homes, talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited and promised Messiah. Once, at least, he went late into the evening. It's in the earlier part of chapter 20 of Acts. And this poor, bored, teenage kid named Eutychus fell out of a window three stories to his apparent death. I've never gone that long. Nobody's ever died on my watch as nearly as I can tell or know. My kids thought they were going to die. But none of them did. That's his method. And so when you come to this letter, he writes in the same way that he ministered. He's constantly engaging his audience. He's constantly listening, if you will. And he's mindful of the fact that he's, he's writing both to Jews and to Gentiles. And you pick this up as you make your way through the letter. He's interacting with real questions, questions he's heard for 25 years. Paul, what about this? Paul, what about that? Paul, if you're saying this, then this is the implication of that. You see it in the letter. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Just to give you a couple of examples. Do you suppose, O man, and he's referring to his Jewish listeners in those verses, do you suppose you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape judgment? Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? You hear the questions? He's interacting with an audience. He's heard this stuff before. Chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage does the Jew have? Paul, if everything that you're saying is true, and it gets summarized in the previous verse, verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul, if that's true, then what advantage does the Jew have? You hear? He's interacting with his audience. Later, In some subtle and not-so-subtle ways, he speaks specifically to the other auditors, the Gentiles. The point is that he's always, and that's in Romans 11, 13, he says very explicitly, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. What's the point here? The point is that Paul's method, having preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons, having taught for thousands and thousands of hours, answering score upon score upon score of questions. The apostle's method is always to be interacting with people. That's why we do what we do on Sunday nights, by the way, so that we can keep the conversation going. I wrote in the bulletin this week, that these have been some rich and helpful times on Sunday evenings. We're not doing this just to fill up the calendar. We're doing this to try to help us grow in our knowledge and understanding of this glorious gospel. We're simply seeking to emulate the Apostle Paul, public, in homes, in smaller settings. So what was his method? His method was to interact. And so what's his argument? 
He's engaging people. Well, what's he engaging them with? His argument is basically this. The thrust of it is basically this. It is the gospel. That's what he's engaging people with. Very mindful of his audience. Very mindful that he's speaking both to Jew and Gentile. Very aware of the questions that will be raised, that will come up in their minds. The Apostle Paul is engaging both Jew and Gentile around the gospel. And the big and overarching question that the Apostle is dealing with, that the Apostle is addressing, is this one. And my friends, there is arguably no more important question that you will ever ask yourself than this question. How can a person who is a sinner be right with a God who is holy? How can a person who is a sinner, and he's argued powerfully in the first and second and first part of the third chapters, that sin is a reality, and it's deep, and it's wide, it's pervasive, and it touches every single one of us. And there is nobody who is exempted from its influence. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3. There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. I know this is a tough pill to swallow. I know it's a big pill to swallow. But when you're engaged with a person who seems to have some interest in the gospel, do not be fooled by appearances. You can never say, he's so close. She is so close. The argument of Paul in Romans chapter 3 is that whether Jew or Gentile, all alike are under sin, 3.9, in two respects. They are under sin in terms of its bondage, and they are under sin in terms of its judgment. It's a twofold condition from which every human being must be delivered if he or she is to be right with God. And the constant theme in the Scriptures The recurring and constant theme, whether Old Testament or New, Genesis 6, God looked down from heaven. He looked at the whole of mankind and saw that the thoughts and intents of their hearts were only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me and I was brought forth in iniquity. That's where the argument starts. And the gospel will never make any sense to you if you don't begin where the gospel begins and the gospel begins with the human condition. Powerlessness, helplessness, and even beyond powerlessness and helplessness, outright, in your face, defiance. Do you know where you see a great example of this? You see it in the passage we read. God. 
Who in the world do you think you are? You're unjust. And you're capricious. And what is Paul's response? His response is to say simply, Sir, you forget yourself. Madam, you forget yourself. You forget who you are and you forget who God is. I don't know who used this illustration first, but it's a great, great illustration. It's the illustration of looking through the wrong end of a telescope. And when you look through the wrong end of a telescope, you make things which are very, very big to become very, very small. And the fundamental inclination of the human heart is to do that very thing to make a God of unspeakable glory and power and incomprehensibility to be a midget. Some of you know the name John Gerstner, and I know this is the hard part of the argument to take in. Some of you know the name John Gerstner. John Gerstner was speaking at a conference at which he was addressing, and he was very, very good at this. In fact, I think as he got older, he got a little too good at this. And frankly, I think he needed to have some of his capability with respect to the condition of man to be salted and leavened a bit more with the glorious grace of God. But John Gerstner in this lecture on the condition of man likened human beings to rats low, living in sewers, despicable. And in the question and answer time, the man went to the microphone furious, furious, and said, sir, you have made a mistake in likening human beings to rats. And Gerstner went to the microphone and said, Sir, you are right. My apologies to the rats. Now, folks, if I could preach for another 30 minutes, I would labor this point. The touching creation, every human being has value and dignity by virtue of the impress of Almighty God printed into the very nature of a human being. But I would press with equal vigor that while on the one hand we value every human life from conception to death and beyond, I would argue every bit as vigorously that human beings by their rebellion have forfeited every claim that they have to Almighty God and they stand under threat of His judgment and wrath because of their sin. That's where the Apostles' argument begins. 
And when you live with his argument, as I've lived with it for the last three and a half years, reviewing it, thinking about it, trying to make my way around it, but being constrained by Holy Scripture to embrace it, you come to the end of that argument and you ask yourself this question, who then can be saved? And how can anyone be saved? And the only answer, the only answer, is by the grace of God in the perfect substitute, Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect obedience acceptable to the Father, and that as a sinless sacrifice offered himself in submission to his Father's glorious will as a sacrifice for those who deserve to die. He suffered wrath and judgment For those, as we said last week, whom the Father had given him from before the foundation of the world. But even that's not the end. You say, okay, here's the cross. Here is Jesus on the cross. Here is this perfect sacrifice. Why would anybody come to it, given the condition of man? And here is the answer to that. The answer is what Paul outlines in Romans chapter 9. God's sovereign purpose in election. God acting in mercy to separate from the mass of fallen, condemned mankind those whom he will save. So that he says... I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Mercy and compassion, remember, mercy is contrary to demerit. It stands over against demerit. It is mercy that overcomes demerit. It is God at the end of the day who is the answer to the question, why does anyone come to the cross? Anyone comes to the cross because God, who is rich in mercy, has mercy upon particular anyone's. And having loved them in eternity past, in the midst of time, by the mighty resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, he raises them from death to life and he brings them to the cross where by his grace they embrace the cross. That's his argument. And that brings us to this ninth chapter And these questions that emerge, the particular question that emerges as we come to this ninth chapter is is this question, and it's, it's coming at Paul from Jews. And they're asking him, Paul, Paul, what about the covenant 
that God made with Abraham. If what you're saying is true, if what you are arguing for is true, if this gospel, the basis of which is the perfect obedience and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, if faith in Jesus Christ is the only hope that I can be reconciled to God, Paul, how do you account for all of this widespread unbelief among those who are the physical descendants of Abraham. And that's what Paul's answer is. His answer beginning with the Jews and then extending on to the Gentiles, his answer to the question is the same. It is God who in electing grace and mercy separates out from physical Israel a true spiritual Israel. But going beyond that, God separates not only out from that nation, but he separates out from the nations of the earth. Those who will come to Christ and who by virtue of their coming to Christ will inherit that great and glorious title, sons and daughters of Abraham. His true seed, not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Whether Jew or Gentile, and indeed from Jew and Gentile, the answer to the question why anybody comes to Jesus Christ is the sovereign, summoning, resurrecting power of the God of heaven and earth. And what is Paul's authority for this? Where does Paul ground his argument. He grounds it in Scripture itself. He grounds his argument in the Old Testament. These passages that are at the end of chapter 9, oh my, not only do the passages individually themselves, but what they represent warrant a whole series of sermons. But if you read these passages, you hear in prophetic terms the scriptural support for the argument that Paul is making. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says, Hosea puts it. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. This passage in its context was a reference to the northern tribes. But you see, the Apostle Paul takes that passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the guiding, directing hand of the Holy Spirit and applies it now not to the lost tribes of the northern kingdom, but he applies it to the Gentiles. You who were not my people, now I will call you my people. You who were not beloved, I will call you my beloved. You who were not my children will be called sons of the living God. Gentiles. Gentiles. Gathered, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, into one body, wherein the distinctions that used to obtain, obtain no longer. And then in answer to the question, Paul, why is it? Why is it that there is widespread unbelief in Israel? 
The answer that the apostle gives is the scriptures of the Old Testament. And basically he's saying to the Jews, read your Bibles more closely. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. The theme across the whole of the Old Testament is that out of this massive number of physical descendants of Abraham, truly, only, and it's a heartbreaking mystery for the Apostle Paul. Don't forget what he says in the first verses. His heart knows anguish and grief over this. But the truth is that the Old Testament had prophesied the very unbelief that the Apostle is seeing. And the Old Testament prophesied the remnant of Israel which would be saved, of which the Apostle Paul, in amazement, recognizes himself to be one. One member of this remnant which God has gathered. To put this as positively as one can put it, what Paul is extolling is the purpose of God as it has unfolded across history, beginning with Abraham and the first promise made to him, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that means, my friends, hundreds of millions of Jews first, but then Vietnamese and Chinese and Tanzanians and Brazilians and Moroccans and Swedes and Egyptians and yes, even Palestinians and Syrians being lifted out of their bondage in death and united to Jesus Christ, making up this one glorious body gathered from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. All to the praise of the glorious grace of Jesus. Read this story. This is your story. This is your book. Read this story and see it as it unfolds, culminating, as we've affirmed already this morning, ultimately, in the return of the King, at which time those for whom he has died from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, will be seated at his right hand to know glory and joy and power for all eternity. That's your story. That's my story. And I am sticking to it. <laughs>